Okay, Matthew chapter 1, 1 through 5. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Amenadab, good job, Amenadab the father of Nishan, Nishan the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, Boaz the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. You guys did it. Way to go. Okay, you can grab a seat. Uh, Somebody willing to pray for us as we open scriptures together. All right, TJ, thank you. Lord, thank you for this morning, this time where we get to gather together to um, just celebrate who you are and what you're doing in our lives. And thank you for this community. Be with John as he shares the word and that it would just uh, penetrate to our hearts and we would live a life that glorifies you, Lord. In your name, amen. All right, thanks. Uh, well, I'm so glad that you're here today. Um, I, earlier this year, I, I was sitting in bed, and I just got a random bit of curiosity about my own family. And uh, so I Googled the name of my biological grandfather, my dad's dad, who passed away when my dad was uh, just a baby. And so I Googled Herbert Neal Welch Jr., and I started at like 9 o'clock at night, and it led me on this hour-long like search into my family tree. And I'm so glad that those people who are curious about ancestry and things like that, because I discovered hundreds of years of family history that I wasn't privy to. I found pictures of tombstones, and I saw all of these names of family members that I'd never seen. And it took me back to the 1600s to Jan van Dalsen, who's living in, in uh, Harlem, Holland. And Jan married Elizabeth, and they had a son named Johannes, who immigrated to the United States or to the colonies in the, in the late 1600s and was living in the New York, New Jersey era. And I got to go through all of these names in the family tree, and I went nine generations down, and I met Cordelia. And uh, Cordelia met a man named Solon Welch, and they got married. And in fact, I've got a picture. Dad, I found this this morning on the Internet. This is a picture of uh, the, the gentleman with the book in his lap is Solon Welch. And uh, Solon standing front and center is his son, uh, Herbert uh, Neil Welch Sr. That's my great-grandfather. And, uh, and, you know, I got to meet him, and that's what he looks like. It's so neat to, to see the family members. What, what was neat to learn is when I began this whole investigation into my family tree, I learned that Solon, who's seated there, who's got a Bible in his lap, uh, moved the family to Perry County, Arkansas, and he was an itinerant evangelist. And my dad had some memoirs that uh, a descendant of his had compiled, stories about my great-great-grandfather. And I learned that in the early 1900s, Solon did a revival in Tulsa, in the, in the area that was Tulsa. And so so cool. I'm learning my own story and realizing I'm not the first member of my family to do this, and even to do this in the city of Tulsa. It was so cool. Solon had Herbert. Herbert had his son, Herbert Neal Jr., who had Philip. 
Philip married Jan and had Jacob and Joey and Jonathan and Jamie, and that's us, and that's, that's our family. It is so cool to kind of accidentally come upon that because the internet is sometimes awesome and really helpful. And I, I mean, I came across this picture just uh, yesterday, which was really fun. That's my family story. There's something really neat and inspiring to know where you've come from and, and sometimes to make sense of your own history. And uh, for the last handful of weeks, this is what we've been doing with Jesus. Jesus has a, a family story that goes way back. And in Matthew 1, we just read the names of a bunch of family members who are real people just like us, who had a, a birth and a family and a life, and they contributed something with their life to the bigger picture story of what God was doing. And over the last couple of weeks, we've been telling the story of that family. And uh, the, the genealogy as we read it is pretty typical. It's, it's a, a patrilineal genealogy, which means it went from father to father to father. And in fact, a portion of this, uh, it was just pulled from the Old Testament. But when Matthew was assembling the gospel, he added the names of four women who were the moms in the story who played a pivotal role, each of them contributing something really meaningful to the story of God and contributing something meaningful to how we understand the kind of king and Messiah we've received in Jesus. And so the first name in the genealogy of a woman that we came across was Tamar. Tamar, if you, if you haven't been here to listen to the story, uh, Tamar comes from Genesis chapter 38, and it is a weird story. Uh, I have referenced it enough that I don't think I should say some of the words from the story again. I've probably used up my, like, my allowance for some of those words for a sermon in a year. But go to the, Gen the Genesis story, Genesis 38, the story of Tamar. It is so weird. Tamar was, uh, was married into the family line of Judah. Judah was one of the sons of Jacob. And uh, Tamar married his first son, who was evil and died, married the second son, who was evil and died. And then Tamar dresses up as a prostitute and gets her father-in-law to impregnate her because he wouldn't release her from the family bonds. She had to marry within the family, but he wouldn't provide a family member. And so Tamar is, does this thing that to us is a bit skeezy, a little bit scandalous, dresses up as a prostitute, gets her father-in-law to impregnate her, and how does the Scripture characterize her? Righteous. <laughs> says, uh, Judah says, what you did was righteous. She's more righteous than I because she was, she was living within the law that dictated she marry within the family. That woman showed up in the genealogy of Jesus. Last week, we looked at the story of Rahab. Rahab was non-Jewish. She was a prostitute living in the city of Jericho. This story comes to us from Joshua chapter 2 and chapter 6. We see Rahab. She'd heard the rumors about the God of Israel, who had parted the waters and freed the Israelites from slavery in Egypt and revealed to them His law and was driving out the enemies before Him. And Rahab said, I know that your God is God over all. And so she hid the, the, the Israelite spies as they were checking out the city of Jericho. And they said, she said, I'm going to hook you up. I'm going to protect you. I'm going to hide you from the people of Jericho. But when you come and conquer, remember me and remember my family. And so Rahab, sticking her neck out for her family, her mother and father and brothers and sisters, uh, preserves them. And she, the text said that she and her family lived among the Israelites to this day. Rahab a dangerous woman, a man-eater, a prostitute, a non-Jewish person, uh, finds herself living among the Israelites. And in the New Testament, she is uh, referred to with great reverence. Uh, James said that she was righteous. 
Rahab the righteous, uh, Rahab the prostitute becomes known as Rahab the righteous. Rahab, who as a prostitute would have had a very forgettable family line, uh, is married, we see in the genealogy of Jesus, to a man named Salmon. And that family line continues on. And Rahab and Salmon have a son named Boaz who plays prominently in this text that we're going to study today in the book of Ruth. So if you have a Bible, you're welcome to turn to the book of Ruth. It's the eighth, eighth book of the Bible. Um, and, uh, and I want to give you a little bit of context for what we're reading. So uh, chapter 1, verse 1 of the book of Ruth says uh, this. There's some meaningful details here for us to uh, pay attention to. Ruth 1.1 says, In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem and Judah, together with his wife and sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. So the first line, in the time when the judges ruled, it's referring to the book right before Ruth. After uh, Moses had led the people out of Egypt and they wandered in the wilderness, they came uh, to the edge of the land and there Joshua led them in the conquest. They drove out the enemies of Israel. There was a time when the people of Israel were living in tribal communities in the land, but they weren't formally organized into a nation. And it was a time that was characterized by tremendous unrest. It was lawless. And, uh, and this is called the period of the judges, where the people would do great evil in the eyes of the Lord. Uh, they would cry out to God when they faced the consequences for their evil, and God would raise up for them a deliverer. This is the story of Gideon, uh, Deborah plays in there, um, Samson kills all the Philistines with the jawbone. This is the period of the judges. The people did evil, they faced consequences, they repented, and God raised up a deliverer. And the this, this cycle happens so many times, it feels like these people are never going to get it together. This is when the story of Ruth takes place, a period of tremendous chaos where there are lots of evil men and poor leadership. Uh, the text goes on uh, to say that, uh, um, wait, where is it? Well, this is Judges 21-25, another way of characterizing uh, the period of the Judges. It says, in those days Israel had no king. And everyone did as they saw fit. This is how the book of Judges wraps up. Things are going really poorly. It's lawless. Israel is like the Wild West. We should not expect very much of them. And it says a man from Bethlehem in Judah. And these details, the Bible doesn't always provide a ton of details in the story, but the details we get matter. Bethlehem, you know, comes to mind at this time of year. We're going to sing, a little town of Bethlehem. Bethlehem is where Mary and Joseph, we know, went uh, for, for Jesus to be born. But they were sent there because Joseph was of the line and the tribe of Judah. He was of the family of David. And so when the Romans took a census of the entire world, they had to go back to family headquarters. Text tells us this is a family from Bethlehem in Judah. And all of this situates us in the broader story that we've been telling the last three weeks. This is the same story of Rahab and Salmon. This is the same story of Tamar and Judah. This is the story of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. It's the same story that we've seen from the book of Genesis. There's continuity in the story. And then it says they went to live in Moab because there was famine in the land. Uh, next year, when we start reading through the Bible together, we're going to get 19 chapters in, and we're going to read the story of Lot. The, the chapter's about Sodom and Gomorrah. It's pretty intense. Lot is the nephew of Abraham, 
And Lot and his wife and his daughters flee from Sodom and Gomorrah, which is being destroyed. His wife dies in the process. And his daughters, afraid that there's going to be no one, like no one that they can marry, get their dad drunk and have their father impregnate them. The Bible is full of great stories of model families. And in fact, really the rule is dysfunction, especially of families in the Old Testament, which gives all of us hope. Uh, But they they get impregnated by their father. The oldest daughter has a son who is named Moab, and that becomes the tribe of Moab. So we've got the, the family from Bethlehem and Judah coming from this kingly line, this scarlet thread that's been running through the Old Testament so far, and they're going to a place where the half-breeds live, where this incestual community that's like gone way, way wrong. And so you expect little of the people of Moab. So the man who, who has a, a wife and the daughters in the story of Ruth is named Elimelech. Elimelech is married to Naomi. And they have two sons, and each of the sons are married, one to a woman named Orpah, which is a great name, and another uh, to a woman named Ruth. And just as the story gets going, we get a picture that this is just like a, a kind of Job story. It's a tragic story. Elimelech, Naomi's husband, dies. The two sons of Elimelech and Naomi die, which leaves Naomi and Ruth and Orpah uh, uh, childless, but also without a male accompany, a person to accompany them in the country. Uh, there's little that they can do for themselves economically. They're in a, in a pickle. They're in a really tight spot. And if you remember from the story of, of Tamar, Judah would not release Tamar from the family so that she could go marry. But Naomi is a, is a good woman, and she says to her two daughters-in-law, to, to Orpah, uh, which is, by the way, that's Oprah's legal name, her mom read the name Orpah in the Bible, and people mispronounced it so many times that she started going by Oprah. That's a true story. That's really how it happened. Uh, so Orpah, whose name means the back of the neck, when released by her mother-in-law from her family vows, left the back of the neck and, and went back to her, own, her father's family. But Ruth, a Moabitess, who's just married into the family, been getting to know the family for 10 years, hasn't even had a child in the family, has a very different response uh, to her mother-in-law. This is Ruth 1, verses 16 and 17. But Ruth replied when her mother-in-law said, you know, go back. You don't have to take care of me. I'm just an old lady. Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I go. Where you stay, I stay. Your people are my people. Your God is my God. Where you die, I'll die, and there I'll be buried. And then she gives this formal language like she's making a covenant to her mother-in-law. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. She's from another tribe, another region. She's not from this family, and yet she makes this pledge of loyalty to her mother-in-law who has now been left destitute. And together, these two penniless women go back Uh, to the land of Israel, where the text tells us it's the time of the barley harvest. That's chapter 1 of Ruth. As we go on to chapter 2, we we learn a little bit more about what's going on in the land, that Naomi has a relative, a distant relative, whose name is Boaz. And luckily, Boaz owns a barley field, which is great news for these women. Because under Levitical law, God had given instruction for how to treat people just like Naomi and Ruth. This is Leviticus 19, verses 9 and 10. 
God instructed the people of Israel, when you reap the harvest of your land, don't reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings, the stuff that dropped off uh, of your harvest. Don't go over your vineyard a second time or pick up the grapes that have fallen. Leave them there for the poor and the foreigner. I am the Lord your God. And the basis of that is you used to be slaves in Egypt, so we're going to treat people who live like that differently with compassion. You used to be slaves in Egypt, so leave it for the poor and for the foreigner. Well, Naomi and Ruth as a, as a, as a team are poor foreigners. She, uh, Ruth is a foreigner, a Moabitess. And so Ruth takes the initiative, learning that they've got a family member with a field, and she goes after the workers, and she's picking up the gleanings. She's getting enough food for herself and for her mother-in-law. And Boaz, the owner of the field, comes up, and he greets his workers, you know, bless you in the name of the Lord. And he sees this woman who's gleaning in the fields and says, who are you? She says, I'm Ruth. She says, I've heard of you. I heard what you did for Naomi. That was really cool. And he says, I'm going to give you blessing. Reap whatever you want in my land. In fact, I'm going to tell the workers to set some aside for you. I'm going to have them draw water just for you, and I'm going to get on their case. If anyone touches you, they're going to have to answer to me. And Ruth is, is blessed by the presence of this guy because he had seen the kindness that she showed to her mother-in-law. And when Ruth asks, you know, why he's showing such kindness, this is Boaz's response in verse 2.11. Boaz replied, I've been told all about what you've done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, how you left your father and your mother and your homeland, and you came to live with a people you didn't know before. May the Lord repay you for what you've done. He blesses her. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you've come to take refuge. Now, one commentator pointed out how impressive it was that Ruth's beauty is never mentioned. There are times in the Bible where, uh, especially within the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob meet their spouse. They talk about their beauty. Ruth's beauty is never mentioned. What is mentioned is her character, and her character was telling a story about the kind of person that she was, and it was attractive to people, attracted them to her. Ruth goes home. She tells Naomi about the day. Hey, I met Boaz, and he's hooking us up. This is going to be awesome. And then Naomi real, uh, reveals this information that Ruth did not know previously. Verse 20, the Lord bless him, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law. He has not stopped showing his kindness. That's an important word, kindness, to the living and the dead. She added, that man is our close relative. He's one of our guardian redeemers. Guardian redeemer, that's a really important word in this text. Sometimes maybe in your Bible it's called a kinsman redeemer, and it's tied to the idea that we saw back in the story of Judah and Tamar, that when a man died without an heir, without a son to carry on the family line, the next closest family member was supposed to go to the dead man's wife and provide a child to marry her and to provide a son in the name of that dead person so that their name would have continuity. They would take over control of their land, they would marry their spouse, and they would raise up a child in the name of the dead. This was called a guardian redeemer, a kinsman redeemer. And Naomi explains to her daughter-in-law, Ruth, he's one of our guardian redeemers. He's in line. He's one of the ones who might be able to help us. Um, so Boaz, we learn in the story, is uniquely positioned to help Naomi and Ruth. 
We turn to chapter 3, and things get a little bit interesting. It's a little bit vague, and there's a little, you're wondering, like, what is going on? When Naomi and Ruth realize that Boaz is like the guy who can help them and hook them up, they decided to get, they're going to get forward. Look, we're poor, and we can't afford to wait around. So uh, Naomi gives instructions to her daughter-in-law, Ruth. Said, okay, put on a nice outfit, put on some perfume, smell good. Uh, Boaz is going to be down at the threshing floor uh, working on the wheat. He's going to sleep there, and when he falls asleep, you're going to go to him. And so uh, Ruth goes along with the plan proposed by her mother-in-law. She goes to Boaz, finds him asleep with a blanket over him, and the Scripture says she uncovered his feet, and then she slept. she slept right there. He woke up in the middle of the night and like, holy cow, who is this woman? And, uh, and some commentators are like, was this like a sexual advance by Ruth? People are wondering if uncovering his feet is some kind of euphemism for something else. But the response by Boaz tell us she, tells us she didn't do anything creepy or she didn't do anything that would have been against the law. Um, he was careful to send her off before the morning came. But he says, sister, you have done something that is righteous you could have gone after the younger men, which tells us that, that Boaz was getting older, but you've done what is righteous. You've stayed within the family law, just like Tamar did with Judah. This highly suggestive thing she does because she's, like, she's not propositioning him. She's more like proposing to him. She uncovered his feet, which would, which would have been in a sexual context, but she waited there for him to make the next move. In this culture, sex is marriage. They're, they're indistinguishable. Uh, Ruth was going to Boaz and saying, will you marry me? She was proposing. I'm poor. I don't have a lot of time to mess around. Will you redeem me? Will you take action as my guardian redeemer, my kinsman redeemer? And then Boaz has this awesome response in verse 10. And we see another key word we've seen time and time again. He blesses her again. The Lord bless you, my daughter. For this kindness, kindness, is greater than that which you showed earlier. You've not run after the younger men, whether rich or poor. You've kept it in the family. I will redeem you. And so Ruth, uh, he, she, he sends her off with a bag full of food to take back to her mother-in-law. And uh, they're just, you know, so full of joy. Goes back in the next morning. Boaz goes to the city gates where business is to be done. And he calls together the elders of the town, and he says, look, I understand that there's one family member closer than me to Ruth. And if you want to take over the family property, uh, you're in line to redeem her first. And the guy says, I'll do it. But then he realizes that he has to marry Rahab, or he has to marry Ruth. And he's like, I don't want to mess up things with my wife. I don't want to mess up things with my inheritance. And, uh, he did, and so he declines and so there, in the presence of the people, Boaz says, I'm going to redeem this family. I'm going to marry Ruth. I'm going to take on the estate of her dead husband, and we're going to raise up a child in his name. And Boaz makes this beautiful covenant. This is uh, uh, chapter 4, verses 11 through 13. The elders and the people at the gate said, we are witnesses May the Lord make the woman who's coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, referring to more of the matriarchs, who together built up the family of Israel. And then watch how cool this is. May you have standing in Ephrathah and be famous in Bethlehem. Through the, the offspring the Lord gives you by this young woman, may your family be like that of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And when he made love to her, the Lord enabled her to conceive 
and she gave birth to a son. And the chapter ends beautifully. It struck me in reading the whole book of Ruth as a whole that this is a book of heroes. In the period of the judges where everyone does what is evil, this is a book of heroes. Ruth is amazing. Naomi is amazing. Boaz is amazing. Uh, the, the chapter ends with the announcement of the birth of the son of Ruth and Boaz, and they name him Obed. In the last four verses, if you had your Bible open, the last four verses of the entire book are a genealogy. And, they, and this is the genealogy that Matthew took and added at the beginning of his gospel, but he added the names of three women who have played a role in the story so far. He says, the son of Salmon was Boaz, the son of Boaz was Obed. Obed was the father of Jesse, who was the father of King David. And by the inclusion of David, we realize that this whole story that we've been reading has been a prequel to, to the announcement of the, the transition that is happening in Israel from anarchy to monarchy, how God had been raising up a king in David in fulfillment of the promises that God had given, spoken through Jacob over his son Judah in Genesis chapter 49. We hear about the news of the coming of David, who's going to be a king, who has a heart after the heart of God, who's, who's coming and playing a pivotal, pivotal role. This is David playing such an important role in the redemption of God's people and God's plan not only to bless one nation, but to bless the nation. It started out with a story like with Job-like scarcity, but it ends with abundance, and all of it happened because of this key word that we've read again and again and again, which is kindness. Kindness. And this is going to be awesome. You're going to love this. Kindness is a key theme in this book, and it means so much more than just being nice. I used to, I've often been described as nice, which I usually take nice as a pejorative, as like spineless. <laughs> Uh, but that's not what kindness means in this context. And we, in fact, we find uh, that, that kindness used in this context is really unique. There are only particular situations when this word, which is called hesed in, in Hebrew, can be used. And so this is, you're going to love this. This is going to be so cool. Four requirements have to be met for this particular word hesed to be used, the kind of kindness that was shown in the story. Hesed can be used, one, when a person cannot help themselves. So in other words, the person needing help is completely reliant on the help of another person. Naomi, uh, you know, childless, husbandless, is destitute. She cannot help herself in this situation culturally. So that's one. Two, the, uh, hesed can be used if the help is not given, things are going to get way worse. So one... Hesed is when a person can't help themselves. Two, if they don't get the help, it's going to get seriously worse. Three, uh, one person is uniquely positioned to help the person in crisis. So they can't help themselves. It's going to get way worse if someone doesn't. And good news, one person is positioned to help. That's three. And four, the person in need has zero control over whether the person who helps actually does it. They're under no obligation to actually help. And so this person in need of help is completely reliant on another person. When these four requirements are met, you use the word hesed with the kindness that's shown. So hesed and, and Ruth. There's the hesed or the kindness of Ruth to Naomi. Naomi's old enough. She's not going to go remarry and have a child. 
She's destitute. Without a child, she's without life insurance. She's without a retirement plan. Naomi receives the hesed, the kindness of her daughter-in-law, Ruth. Ruth remaining attached to Naomi leaves the possibility of the family line being redeemed. And so Ruth offers hesed kindness to her mother-in-law out of love for her and because she's a woman of noble character. That's how the Scripture introduces her. So there's the hesed of Ruth to Naomi. Uh, There's the hesed kindness of Boaz to Ruth and Naomi. Uh, The first in line, if the first in line doesn't want to redeem the family, he's the only person that can help. He's uniquely positioned to help. Uh, If Boaz doesn't help, they're sunk. Things are going to get way worse. He's the one who can rewrite the family story. Uh, With the inclusion of the genealogy and the references to Tamar, we see the hesed kindness of God to Israel. How from the very beginning, God has faithfully been working this plan to rescue and redeem his people. But then with the inclusion of this name, David, and the storyline that shoots off as a result of his, his, uh, king, his kingly rule, we see the hesed kindness of God not only to Israel, but to all of the nations of the world. Because through this family line, through David, another son would be born in Bethlehem. One who would come not only to redeem one nation, but to redeem all of the families of the world. And Jesus came as the kinsman redeemer, the guardian redeemer for all of sinful humanity. And what's so cool is the New Testament authors realized this. They picked up on this. Now, remember the four requirements. A person can't help themselves. They're totally relying on another. If help is not given, things are going to get way worse. One person is uniquely positioned to help. And four, there's nothing they can do to petition that person to help. They're totally relying on them. Think about that through the lens of uh, uh, Ephesians chapter 2. This is Paul writing to the church in Ephesus. Think about these four requirements. He said, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world. And the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. Paul says, You were dead in your sins. If you need to get something done, how helpful are dead people? Generally not very helpful. Uh, Jesus was pretty helpful, uh, you know, but he was raised to life. He says, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. There was nothing you could do to help yourselves. Then he goes on. He says, all of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. He says, on your own, you are dead in your sins. There is nothing you can do to help yourself. And if someone doesn't help you, it's going to get way worse. Paul says we were all by nature deserving of wrath. We're dead in our sins, which is bad enough, but there will be wrath. There will be judgment for us. He goes on to verse 4. But Paul says, but because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy, but because of his great love for us, God, setting up there is one who is uniquely positioned to help us. And how did he help? This is verse 5. God, because of his great love for us, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. The one who is uniquely positioned to help us, God, whose great love for us prompted us him to send his son, Jesus Christ, made us alive. And this is not because we coerced him. It says, it is by grace you have been saved. You can't control God. 
God is the one who has come to the rescue. God is redeeming his people. God is expressing hesed kindness to his people. And then Paul goes on to belabor that point. This is how he ends this section. He said, God raised us up with Christ, gave us a place of dignity, seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it's by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not of yourselves. This is the gift of God so that no one can boast. It's through faith expressed the kindness, the hesed kindness of Jesus Christ who has redeemed us. While we were dead in our transgressions and sins, he made us alive with Christ because of his great love for us. And this is his tremendous grace. This grace is accessible, the scriptures say, through faith. And in the same way that Ruth took the initiative to approach her Redeemer, asking, will you redeem me? The scriptures invite us to go to the throne of grace with confidence and ask our Lord who has already done everything required for our redemption and who is uniquely positioned to be our Redeemer, will you do that for me? And the scriptures teach us we have a God, we have a Redeemer in Jesus Christ who is so eager to say, I'm already here just waiting. Here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come in and eat with him and he with me. I'll make him part of my family. See how great love the Father has lavished on us that we would be called children of God, welcomed into the family. This is the kindness of God that's expressed to us through Jesus. And he gave us a picture of it. He called his shot hundreds of years before it was ultimately fulfilled. The God who has been faithful to us in the past is faithful now and will be faithful forever. No matter what you've done, no matter your story, no matter just how dead or wayward you are, there's good news and there's hope for you, a place of redemption and belonging in the family of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your great love for us. Thank you that you come as the son of David. You come uh, to redeem your people. We're dead in our sins. Apart from you, we're dead in our sins by, by nature deserving of wrath. But because of your great love for us, you came providing redemption, winning us from the dominion of darkness and welcoming us into the kingdom of the Son. Oh, Jesus, I pray for uh, those of us in this room uh, that all of us might know the grace of Jesus. That while we uh, continue to revert to this old narrative of performance-based acceptance, I pray that today you would remind us and renew in our minds uh, the tremendous gift of your grace expressed to us in Jesus. We did not deserve your kindness. We, we did not coerce your kindness. It was out of your love for us and your character in the Godhead that you showed us love in Jesus. Pray that you'd give us the grace to live in that love, let that love saturate our very being. We'd be characterized by people of love, putting down roots in love, putting out fruits of love, that we might be in that way like Jesus in this world. And I pray for those who've, who've wandered far from you, who think they're too far off, Lord Jesus, that you give them the assurance that you love them, that you've been working to redeem and bless them from before the creation of the world. And for those of us who, who have wandered from Jesus, who have never said yes to be part of his family, as we come to communion today and we receive the bread and wine, we come offering only our sin and asking for help. 
And though we come open-handed, we're given the gift of the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus who wants to make us new. So uh, if you've never professed faith in Jesus today and coming to receive communion, maybe you would do that for the first time. Say, I want to be part of your family. I want you to redeem me and make me new. Jesus, thank you for your great love for us. Thank you for the gift you've given us at the table. I pray that you'd help us to be in this world, the body of Christ, redeemed by his blood. In his name we pray. Amen.